hard can it be up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time? My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Uh, each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise uh, for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. And this week, my guest is Patrick Malampi. Uh, Patrick is one of the co-founders of 128 Technology uh, and that company's uh, chief operating officer. With longtime partner Andy Ori, Patrick co-founded Acme Packet and served as its chief technology officer, eventually taking that company public and then selling it to Oracle in a transaction valued at over $1.3 billion with a B. Uh, Patrick holds a BS in mechanical engineering from the University of Pittsburgh and an MBA from BU. Uh, a great student of innovation, Patrick's also accumulated over 26 patents uh, over his career. And uh, we're going to spend the second part of our chat together really focused on the nature of innovation. And uh, he had some really interesting things to, uh, to share about that. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Here now, my conversation with 128 Technologies, Patrick Malampi. All right, so I'm here with Patrick Malampi, 128 Technologies. Welcome, Patrick. Welcome. Or thank you for having me. How are you great. doing? Great. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you coming out. I know you had a hell of a time getting here. It's uh, that 128 hour uh, show there. Let's start from the beginning in terms of your journey. Um, where did you Where did you grow up? Where were you born? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Detroit, and um, my parents moved to just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when I was about five, and that's pretty much where I consider my um, my, my home is in the Pittsburgh area. Any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have. Um, there's I, there's eight brothers and sisters. Eight. Yes. Where are you in the birth order? I'm the third from the oldest. Right. Yeah. How does growing up in a family like that um, affect you today, you think? Gosh, I don't know. Maybe it makes me... Um, that's a very good question. Um, I, I guess I know how to get along with people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I find middle kids tend to be peacemakers. You yeah. Know? That's interesting. And was your... was your So those are two industrial cities. Was your dad... You know, what did your dad do? Yeah, my, my father was uh, um, an engineer, but also an executive. He was sort of... Uh, uh, plant manager, plant engineering, in most of his career, and uh, in the steel industry. Interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny because I think about you in that way. I, you know, I know you, you're an engineer, but also an MBA. And mm-hmm. uh, did your mom work? No, well, not outside the home, but she certainly worked hard. Yes, I bet, I bet. All right, so you, you grew up in Pittsburgh, and uh, you have a good experience there in general. Yeah, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and yeah. so I was. Uh, uh, the Steelers were. Um, uh, at their peak when I was uh, in college, so it was it was a lot of fun. Exciting. Yeah. When I started college, I was working in the steel mill every summer, and there were still 20, I think 26 steel mills in Pittsburgh when I was in college in uh, in uh, the, the, the mid to late 70s, and by the time I graduated and was seeking a job, there were none. Right. Yeah, so it was a pretty... 
pretty quick change. Wow. Yeah. So uh, did that inspire you to make sure you were on the right side of change in your career? Or? Yeah, I think it did. That's yes. a good life yeah. lesson there. Yeah. Um, what did you do after school? I got a job at, uh, at the Timken Roller Bearing Company in Columbus, Ohio. Um, were you in another kind of industrial jobs before you went into the tech space? or like? No, that was my first job. And in 1981, I was sitting there at work, and I remember distinctly they uh, brought in a computer, and they said, hey, college boy, come because everyone there, the average, the average person working there had 25 years of experience, and I was the new kid on the block. And... They rolled in the, the computer and they, they called me over to try to figure it out. So that's basically the first time I, I had any uh, computer involvement or any technology involvement. And the IBM PC, they just allocated them. They bought a bunch of them and they allocated them to different engineering groups. And our engineering group got an IBM PC with a 10 megabyte hard drive and they set it on a desk and that's and and they they didn't have any purpose for it other than they received it on allocation uh, as a tool to use uh, for their jobs did you have an affinity for it or was it a, was it attractive or interesting in some way oh yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, definitely we um, we were able to uh, program it and use it um, we created an applications there um, we did a lot of really interesting things um, using older languages and, and bizarre things. And uh, the projects worked out really well. And it was sort of my, in, in the first two or three years of my career, it was all hands-on learning, you know, about computers and about information technology, right, in, in terms of working at the bearing company. Right. How long were you there? I was there three years. And after that, what'd you do? I left there and moved to Boston. So at the time, um, in Columbus, Ohio, um, you know, there, were, there weren't a lot of great technology jobs, but I, was, I had decided I wanted to do computer science. I had, and um, I had learned while I was in Timken Bearing Company the seed language, which was brand new. Um, Unix was just, just born. And um, I noticed when I uh, visited Boston on vacation that the Boston Globe at the time would have three, 350 pages of help wanted ads. Um, of course, it's before the internet. And um, if you look through those ads, it, there was a stunning amount of um, distributed um, Unix, uh, C language technology jobs, just a stunning amount. And so I became so encouraged by my, and, I, and you couldn't learn C anywhere except on your own because there was no classes, there, it was a new language. And I knew it pretty well, so I was so encouraged, I went back to the Tim King Company and I just quit and drove to Boston and uh, stayed with a relative and, and found a job doing um, uh, C, C programming. So, How long did you do that as a programmer, a little sort of line guy? Well, I worked oddly at the Harvard Community Health Plan uh, for a brief while, uh, a year or two. And while I was there, I was doing some programming um, that was uh, some device driver work, things like that, minor stuff that was bad, but also some systems analysis work. And, um, and then I went into full-time C programming at a startup called Zymacom. It, was, uh, uh, it, it failed, but it was a really cool company that was started by the founders of Tautron up in Westford, Mass. And um, I worked there for about, I don't know, two years, two or three years. They were making voicemail systems and 
um, new kinds of telephones that um, could send text messages. It was really cool for the for the late um, late eighties, early nineties. It was very cool. What do you think attracted you to a startup environment? You had real jobs up until then. What, what was it that? Well, uh, I, I, I was following technology more than markets or money because back, you know, none of these companies offered me any stock or any equity. So it was all just about learning about Unix and distributed pro- programming. I was very fascinated by that. Well, tell me about meeting Andy Ori for the first time. What was that? What was that? Where, well, when, where did that happen in the journey? Well, when Zymacom went bankrupt, they were in the same sort of marketplace as um, Boston Technology. And Boston Technology was recruiting people that uh, were at Zymacom. So they, they found me and they brought me in and I met Scott Jones and I met the people starting Boston Tech and, that, and they hired me and I was the fifth engineer there. Um, and they uh, actually had won a sizable uh, contract from what would the, at the time was Bell Atlantic. And they only had four engineers. I was the fifth, so it was, I didn't see how they were going to pull it off. Right. Um, Andy Ori was there at Boston Tech. He was there before I got there. And he was working on their user interfaces. He was like a, like a, like a marketing program manager guy. And um, I was an engineering guy, and that's where we met. Right. You know, you guys have such a storied relationship. What do you think is is it about you two that has seemed to work so well together at, across these companies? What is it? Is it is it personal? Is it complementary skill set? What, what, what's the secret? Yeah, I think it's complementary skill set. He um, more than anyone in the world, he can walk in or walk through or pass by technology or people or situations, and he just picks it up. He just learns by osmosis. Um, and he's, so he's a very, very compelling and articulate speaker as well. So he, he really is able to raise money. He's really able to tell stories. He's, he's able to connect the dots. And I was able to assemble engineering teams and build products. And so the two of us together started off and created, um, party call management. Um, and, you know, that was a lot of work. Um, we did okay. I think we were lucky. I think um, you know sometimes you need luck, and we were lucky. Um, uh, he, he and his father um, worked very, very hard and poured a lot of effort into that business and took a lot of risks, uh, financial risks. I didn't take any risks, um, but the business did well, and you know we worked really hard and had a good outcome, created good products, built a good engineering team, and that was um, you know the first company we, we worked on together. You know, talk, talk about that career transition, right? You, you were someone that was very deliberate about developing, you know, technical skill sets and following the technology earlier in your career. Yeah. And then, then you know, you evolved to this place, you're, over, you're managing teams, right? And that, that in some ways you're getting further from that, right? That, that's, a big, that's a big shift. Talk about what that was like and why you felt it was important to do. Well, it, it's a big shift in retrospect but at the time you know we started the business with two guys you know (laughs) then it was three um then it was four you know so it was a very slow gradual shift it wasn't you know any in a sudden shift and um as we developed the product and um got some customers and got customer feedback and hired some marketing people and started to look at 
making money. You know, I started to become more of a student of um, of innovation and how to how to become a business person um, as well. Now, I did finish my MBA around the time that Andy started uh, Party Call Management, so I also had some skills, some basic business skills as well. We're going to talk about uh, innovation in our second segment here, but for engineers who are managing teams, you know, how do you build a great engineering team? What are the what are the sort of two or three things you think are most important? Is it does it come down to hiring? Is it process? Is it you know what are, what are the real keys to building a high functioning engineering team? Do you think? Well, <laughs> I think a lot of people would like to know the exact recipe. Um, and it's very hard to understand why sometimes a small group of engineers can create more value and more uh, functionality than very, very large teams. And, um, you know, that, that, that's the sort of, of, of magic. And I think um, the first version of Lotus 1, 2, 3, three guys wrote it in assembly language, which is a very hard language to use in nine months. But by the time version 3 came out in written in C, there were... 350 engineers working on it, and it took twice as long. So engineering is really, really hard to figure out um, why, when conditions are right, there can be just amazing and stunning product development. You know, back then, you had to write all the code. There wasn't any... There wasn't a lot of things you could use or leverage. There wasn't leverage available in open source. There weren't a lot of well-understood know-how. You couldn't hire engineers that had experience. So you really, you know, the, the slate was clean back then. You had to figure it all out. If you needed to make something work, you had to find a way. Um, even things like redundancy and simple uh, database technologies that we just go and get some open source today. You know, back then you really just didn't have it. You had to go make it. And so, you know, you, what you really needed was really, really fast and motivated software engineers. Now you have all these other places where you can get leverage. And what you need now is different skill set to win. You need, um, you really need to have people who, engineers who look out at what's available outside of the room they're in to get leverage, which is not naturally what engineers do. Engineers are quiet, inward-looking people. So, you know, today the skill sets are a little, are a little bit different. Um, so you took us through the end of priority call management. Uh, did have a nice outcome there. How does that lead to Acme Packet? Well, after priority call management was sold and sold again, it got to the point where it, you know, I needed to do something new. And um, I didn't have... I didn't have the kind of money where I could just say I'm going to retire. Um, Andy was did you know pretty well. He bought his house in Lincoln, and he was focused on on sort of refurbing that house. Um, but I needed to do something. I needed to get another business uh, or do something new. And you know we had um, a great idea, and it you know we thought our market selection and market timing were close to perfect. We uh, the 3GPP, which was the is the big standards body that focuses on um, mobile architectures, selected a new protocol for their network called SIP, and there was very little um, infrastructure uh, or equipment or software for SIP in the world. So we decided to start a company focusing on SIP infrastructure, and we weren't the only ones. There was probably 35 venture back companies that 
before we knew it, we're in the space. So it was a crowded space. Um, but we did really well. And um, what, Why? What, what did you have that the other 34 didn't, you think? Oh, that's a good question, because um, we had less money than many of the others. Um, uh, many of our competitors had maybe twice as much investment. I think we, and whether it's by good luck or by skill, we just chose the right, exactly right, perfect way to go forward in terms of the product development. We chose to have a product that was slower, but more exact, whereas many of the competitors chose to go with something that was less exact and faster. So we were what we called a back-to-back user agent, which allowed us to have perfect uh, security and control. And virtually all the other competitors chose to go with something that we'll call an ALG, application layer gateway, They, which, you know, in a narrow sense was equal, exactly equal to what we were doing, but just not as exact. And so when they tried to do laboratory testing and failover testing, redundancy testing, um, it they always wound up not doing it correctly. And we were able to do it perfectly. So um, we had... We had a banking, a banker's banking grade transaction capability. Everybody else didn't. And then uh, our, our bet was that telephone companies really care about this stuff and that we could make it faster over time. And that was exactly the correct bet. Huh. Did that conviction to swim against the tide come from the fact that everyone, you know, did you want to zag while everyone else zigged? Was it about differentiation or was it just you felt like you had an insight to what that customer yeah. uh, prioritized? Well, we were, we made that decision because we were involved with customers and customers were telling us what their requirements were. And I think the other, so we arrived at that architecture by interwork, by, by interfacing with customers very early on. Whereas some of our competitors um, didn't have customers or didn't have big customers, they might have had customers that had diff- that didn't care as much, and so really we couldn't satisfy our customers' needs without doing it that way. And so, right. uh, so that you know, normally, um, you know, startups um, don't inter- don't interface with customers as much as we did, but. We did do a lot of that early on, and that helped us really get the right product focus. It's amazing how those early customers, yeah. they really do shape the product. They uh, do. They do. Um, I want to come back to Acme Packet in a minute, but as you get rolling with your new thing, 128 Technologies, which we'll talk about, how do you think about the kinds of customers that you're looking for early based on the experience at Acme Packet? Well, in every case, as I've gone through my career, we always go back to the customers we know. Um, at Party Call Management, we were talking to folks that we had met when we were at Boston Tech. And then when we were at, we were at Acme Packet, we were talking to some folks we met at Party Call and so on. So we were able to, through the network of our, of our track record, we were able to get to people who, mm. who are willing to talk to you and, and, and help you out. Um, and, then, and that's true to this day. Um, now, not every person that we that hooks us up with the customer um, is an engineer or a previous customer. Sometimes they were investors. Sometimes they were friends of the family. One of the things that is, if you look at the G20, they've been very helpful to us as well because uh, we all sh- uh, we're all working together to you know. And I think we've had a lot of introductions through our G20 uh, partnerships as well to get to 
customers and to connect with them. It's interesting that that orientation to really becoming intimate with a certain customer type and then applying successive generations of technology against the problem, you know, that's Ash's thing too. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've lamented, Bill Campbell said uh, the, one of the big differences that he observed between the West Coast and the East Coast was that, it, that uh, in the West Coast, that was typical, that you had people that became intimate with a customer problem and tried to build a solution to it. Uh, whereas on the West and the East Coast, it, it tended to be more people who had created some new technology and they were sort of a solution in search of a problem, hmm. you know, looking to monetize or commercialize, mm-hmm. you know. It's just, it's interesting to me that both you guys and Ash, and, and I, it's something I, I hear more that really becoming intimate with a scaled customer problem and trying to apply a new generation of technology against it. Is that a fair characterization, yeah, you think? Yeah, very fair. Yeah. All right, so Acme Packet was a total home run. You actually took it public first, right? The company was public for a while, was it not? We went public in 2006, and um, we then sold it to Oracle in 2013. So we were public for about seven years. Yeah. Did you did you like running a public company? or, or uh... Yeah, I mean... Well, public or private, it's easier to run a company that's growing than one that isn't. Sure. So when Acme was growing, it was, um, you know, you always have frustrations. Customers are always upset. Employees, you know, you have to deal with all the issues that employees have. And so it's always frustrating either way. But when you're growing, people are happy. You can give raises to people. You can um, set goals higher. You can pat yourselves on the back. When businesses slow their, when the growth slows, it you start to have to make choices. You start to have to say no, <clears throat> and and that's really not much fun. Sure. Yeah. When Oracle came around, was that hard for you guys? Was it? I mean, this was your baby, you know. Um, selling yeah. it to someone. Talk a little bit about the sort of emotional dimension of that. It is. I mean, it is sad. To, it was sad, but at the same time, you know, the life cycle of the business in the market it was in. It it had a sixty share in a market that wasn't growing, and you know, you, you can't take you can't grow the business if you can't. I mean, there's nowhere to go. If, sure. And sure. So, so it was. It had run its course. Um, when we started Acme Packet, voice was eighty five percent of all revenues in tele- in phone companies and data was 15 percent sure uh, they were losing money on data they had just acquired in fact MCI and all the data companies that were um, represented the internet were not part of phone companies when we started Acme packet they were separate companies uh, aimed to take on you know the traditional phone companies using IP technology like what we were making they all went bankrupt um, or got acquired, and everything got restructured, and the traditional, uh, all the CLEX went away, all the attackers went away, and the Verizons and the AT&Ts wind up uh, being the ones that survive. And, you know, for us, that whole transformation um, of that marketplace while we were there and seeing the value of voice go from 85% of what these companies were making down to 15%. I mean, the value of voice just went to zero. I mean, long distance, gone. Calling cards, gone. Like, uh, um, even on the mobile phones, the voice is no longer matters. It's just, it's all data. So when that transition occurred, the people that created, inside the phone companies that created the business cases for voice infrastructure, 
had had less and less and less to spend. Just they just had less. Sure. And so they put more and more pressure on prices, and uh, and the only way to it had to come from somewhere. And so it came out of top line revenue that was available to go get. Now we had eighty percent gross margin products. And boy, that that's a tough sell to these guys um, when they're trying to put together a, a large network. And um, it, 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 we just could not grow the market anymore. Yeah. It just it was the end of the road. And you, you had seen how that story ends in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we didn't know it, that all that was going to happen. Um, we believed when we started the business that voice was eighty-five percent of everything that mattered. And that data was going to go the way of voice, <clears throat> and it was going to become session. We felt the SIP initiation protocol was going to be used to establish data sessions, as what we thought. We thought that's why Gary Bowen invested in our business. We believed that to get good data services that are video or multimedia or or special data services, they had to be signaled. We believed that. And I think we believe that to this day. And, and so our, our belief was that we were going to be uh, a giant part of the future Internet and a giant part of how f- everybody makes money. And it, and it didn't pan out. And the value proposition just fell through the floor. Right. World changed. Yeah. All right. So incredible outcome, though. Um, you know, a unicorn oh, yeah. before there were unicorns and an incredible success. And so you guys had some, a chance to regroup. Why don't you explain in, in the simplest possible terms, what is 128 technology and, and yeah. what is it about it that, uh, that you find exciting? 128 technology, we, we are, our, our tagline, I guess, is we're trying to fix the Internet. A lot of people don't really realize um, how vulnerable the internet is and how difficult it is and how lucky we are that it even works at all. Um, and you know, it, 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 it's, um, there's got, there's a lot of problems in data networking, just a lot. Now data networking honestly froze in place in 1993 and, and what caused it to sort of just stop changing was the dramatic growth of the internet was one of the factors. And the second factor was that uh, special ASICs were developed that were, you know, that were the backbone of making the internet work. And those ASICs made by Cisco, Juniper, and, and other companies, um, that those techniques were very uh, inflexible. They're very fast, but very inflexible. So the, the internet itself, as it really operates the same way it did in, as it did in 1993. It just hasn't changed. Meanwhile, everything else has changed. Compute has been transformed, you know, many, many times over. Uh, storage, it's, it's unfathomable, the advancements in storage. Sure. I mean, just unbelievable. Um, but, you know, basic routing protocols haven't changed since, since 1993. In 1993, IPv6, OSPF version 2, BGP4, the, uh, the current versions of all these protocols were already standards. They predated even RFC 1918, which is the definition of private address space. The first commercial firewall shipped four years after all these standards were in place. So the the notion of networking in 1993 was, how do I connect Banyan Vines? Um, How do I connect um, DEC all-in-one or or IBM SNA or... Uh, Proteon or uh, somebody's Ethernet or um, 
ArcNet or Novell's Netware? How do I connect these? And it wasn't about the internet. It wasn't about the way we think of it today. And so all those IP protocols were made to connect lands to each other, but not to reach into those lands and, and to endpoints and or into servers. Uh, that, that, that really didn't come about until five years later. And had the, had the private networking space been sort of codified in people's minds before these routing protocols, we might have had a different world where we where we didn't really have things that we have today, like firewalls and load balancers and and these different elements. So it, it just evolved wrong. It's almost like um, if you know sometimes evolution is wrong, and it it just evolved in the wrong order, and nobody could fix it. There were thousands and thousands of users and tremendous value being obtained from just the way it was. And the way that they solved problems was by making new things to go on top of the base. New protocols like MPLS, new devices like firewalls or load balancers or DPI devices. Um, and they just kept piling on the tech, you know. And now the latest rage over the last three years is virtual networking. Because the network is so inflexible and so difficult to use and not doesn't have the agility people want. People are now saying, well, let's make another network, complete new network on top of the old network, and we'll use tunnels and um, and we'll call it virtual networking because everything that's virtual seems to make money and seems to be better, virtual storage, virtual net compute. So there's got to be virtual networking. So, they, so we'll do this and we'll create these overlay networks. And um, what's happening is, is there's a ton of complexity in... The base network, the, the the underneath network that hasn't been dealt with, and then they're adding all this new layer of networking on top of the old network, and they're not able to really connect the two worlds correctly. And when links go down, or when network um, networks change uh, in in the underlay, it's just causing tremendous complexity in trying to figure out how to do things in the in the virtual network layer. And, um, you know, NYSERA created the sort of first um, great um, virtual networking company bought by VMware, 1.2 billion, 70 guys. They don't even have the product really working. So they get bought. Um, uh, VMware spends two years integrating them, creating this whole product family called NSX. And they have these virtual networking layers that are tied in tightly with their solution, and it works great, but it's really complex. And, you know, there's no end of more complexity on the horizon. Service, there's service function chaining. There's, and, and what we did was we looked at, at all of this and said, well, what is it that people really want to do? And if we could go back to 1993 and reimagine how networking evolved, understanding where we are today, uh, could, we, could we make something, could we come up with a different idea? Different, and that's what 128 technology is doing. And it's really quite, quite interesting. We're getting very positive feedback. Is the end game to create higher performing and you know, radically simplified networks connected to conventional networks? Or is it to transform? Yeah. So the vision is an inter-networking vision. So today, if you're in, here we are in your office in a private network and almost every application you consume is in a data center, which is also a private network. And 
Our vision is to do internetworking between private networks, IPv4 public networks, IPv6 public networks, and sort of data center private networks, to do that internetworking end-to-end so that certain people and certain applications get exactly the right routing treatments that they should get, and those who aren't invited to the party, let's say, um, aren't allowed to try to attempt to connect. So um, we, we think that routing should be end-to-end and not edge-to-edge, um, and we think it should reach into private networks and reach across and between IPv4 and IPv6 networks. So if routing can do that, a lot of problems go away. Your NAT64 uh, devices become transparent. Your firewalls are eliminated. Your load balancers and NAT devices inside data centers can be thrown away. And we think that you know, with the current security model, as soon as you go end-to-end, you now have the ability to use transport, transport layer security techniques that are truly reliable. And so um, that's what we think. Right. So rather than pile on more and more technologies to treat the symptoms, you're going to go in and, and yeah. cure the disease. Internet is broken, and we're going to fix it. <laughs> no shortage of ambition on the part of Patrick Malampi and co. Um, you know, fascinating perspective on a couple of generations of technology there. Having a conversation with someone who's got 26 patents, who's been involved in applying these successive generations of technologies against customer problems. Uh, when I asked Patrick what he wanted to talk about in our second segment, he didn't hesitate. He said, I want to talk about innovation. Uh, Patrick feels strongly that people have it wrong when they think of innovation as creating something out of whole cloth or, or even of learning something new. Uh, his view is that uh, the inhibitor to innovation is actually uh, the struggle that we all have to unlearn the things that uh, we've accumulated over the years. And uh, here's the rest of our conversation about that. I really believe that we have to turn things inside out and upside down at the same time to see them clearly. And when you see them clearly, then you can um, uh, start to de- you can start to come up with new and innovative ideas. I think so often, so often people don't, uh, they either take the current circumstances or the current situation that they have, and they lens into looking for what can be innovative, but without taking away all these, de- all these sort of degrees of freedom. And it happens all the time. I see people Uh, just making baseline assumptions without actually pretending like they don't understand or pretend like, you know, they're coming from Mars and why. There's so many examples of that. We we went to a customer recently, and um, they they had a new rule that I thought was fascinating. They're doing network architecture design at a carrier or big, big network operator, and they basically had a new rule that, that said you can't use vendor names in architecture documents because you need to use what the requirement is. You can only talk about what the technical requirement is. So instead of saying, put an F5 here and a Cisco here and a a Palo Alto here, you have to put the exact technical requirement instead. So when you're building network architectures, you know, it was really really clever exercise um, because a lot of times they were um, putting 
vendors into architectures because of possibly one requirement instead of thinking about, well, what is it, what, why do I need that here? And, and I think that's uh, an example of how uh, if you want to be innovative, you have to not understand. You have to look with fresh eyes. You have to be from Mars. It has to be upside down. You, I don't know if you ever saw that drawing on the left side of the brain book or whatever where people say, if you want to draw a face, turn it upside down. You can actually draw it better. Well, most of us can because we're not recognizing the face. Right. And that's the same belief I have with technology and innovation is you have to you, you really have to unlearn what you know. Oh, well, I, it's funny. I use that exact phrase. When we talk about, you know, explaining Actifio to people is, is, uh, can be very challenging. And so, you know, I, I will often say to a customer, the challenge of Actifio isn't learning what it is. It's unlearning the way you've done it for the last 30 years. Exactly. Right? Because those, that set of assumptions about how things work is so deeply embedded yes. that it's very hard to, to, over, to set it aside. It requires conscious effort to set aside, you know, your learned bias about these things and, and, and break with the past. You it know? does. And, it, and it's not just true at a high level what product should a company make. It's true all the way down the organization into, you know, low-level decisions about algorithms to use in the engineering or how to do benefits or whatever. Um, at the last two companies we worked at, um, our go-to-market strategy was what I would call an, a, an evolved one. It's one where we just start selling, and, t- and as we're selling, people tell us what to do, and we say, okay, we'll go do that. Oh, we need to sign up this distributor? Okay. Oh, we need to have this um, VAR? Okay. Oh, you know, we need to have a trading company to import stuff into Japan? Okay. You know, and you just keep going, and you wind up with, you evolve into a, a way of getting to the market. Right. And I think we, without even questioning it, you wind up accumulating lots and lots and lots of partners. I mean, you just because it's what happens. You, you know, you get partners for this, partners for that, ecosystems of this and everything. And, you know, they, it takes a lot of time, effort, money, and it's dilutive both to your message and your profitability sometimes. And, um, you know, and, we, and we, didn't really, we didn't really think about it. And so the question now for companies, particularly now with software as a service and new ways of reaching customers... You know, is should they extend innovation to all aspects of the business, from pricing to go to market? And and the one thing that's exciting for me about starting 128 Technology is it is a fresh slate, and we can start over, and we can think things through like that that we wouldn't have necessarily thought through before. It's not just about the technology; it, it's about more than that. You know, that comes down to looking at a given situation and trying to decide, okay, what is you know fundamental. And what is negotiable, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. so, so, how do you do that, right? You know that you know the yeah. take take the partner ecosystem thing, right? Yep. Same same with us, same with all companies, right? You see why why you know channel innovation, business model innovation is so difficult. Mm-hmm. How do you tell? Is there a rule of thumb that you use? Is it just about being conscious about the need to differentiate those things? How do you do it? Well. It's easy to do it when you don't have any business, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> I think for us, we're hoping that disruptive pricing and disruptive technology will be enough to, to get people to change in the market how it's done. I, I bought a piece of software um, a couple of days ago from a company called Carbon Black. Great company, best, best security software on the planet. And I went to get a quote from them, and I'm working directly with them. I went to get a quote from them, and the guy said, well, I can't give you a price. You have to get it through a partner. And I said, well, 
okay, and uh, which partner? He goes, well, we have lots. Uh, we got 100 or so. And I said, okay, well, which one do you recommend? And he recommended one, and I said, fine. And I got a quote. And he told me the quote was a good price. So, okay. Um, so I get the order. I place it. And now they're sending me the license keys. Carbon Black is. I don't even know the name of the value-added reseller. I don't even know. I have no idea who they are, why I selected right. them. Right, the ironically named. I, 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 had to make, <laughs> I had to make two decisions, right? Yeah. One of which I just don't care about. Yeah. Um, and what's funny is, is I asked the sales guy because I was curious about the go-to-market. I said, well, these value-added resellers add any value? And he said, well, you know, sometimes. Sometimes they bring us business. I said, oh, okay, that's cool. But more often than not, no. You know, what, what stinks about selling services is that you sell it for a term, and then there's a second term. Hopefully, a, 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 you know, they, they come back and extend it for another year or another, you know, and, and after that, another year, and hopefully it goes on forever. And you, you don't mind, really, if someone helps you get business sharing or giving or somehow compensating them for bringing you the customer in the first year. But gosh, if that customer is going to buy stuff from you for 10 years, do you really want to give this value-added reseller a chunk of that forever? You know, and that that's um, that's a hard one. They might, it's a hard one. You know, so we, we're um, trying to be, we think innovation in the go-to-market is an important area to focus on and think about uh, before it just happens. So that's what one of the things we're working on that we're having a good time with. You know, it's interesting. It's a it's a common thread to a lot of a lot of the arc of the things that you've done is that is that it starts with trying to decide how much of the way things are is because of the way things were. Yes. Right. You're trying to make that delineation of what is just inertia from the requirement in 1993 or whatever, versus if I had a clear-eyed understanding of the requirement today. What would this thing look like if I were building it for what I now know? Exactly, um, and and that's a you know a hard thing to do, but um, I think that's the trick to innovation in any aspect of your business is to is to um, not understand it and try to re-understand it, and uh, I think that's you know that's what we're trying, and I'm I think it's really uh, important to do in all aspects of, of what you do. So how much of what is, is because of what was. There's your tweet-worthy soundbite from my conversation with Patrick Malampi. Um, really great talk, and um, thank you, Patrick, for spending some time with me today. Uh, how Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for sticking around. I will see you next week.